Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Welcome to Modern Optics. Modern is going to mean anything since 1666 for us, the time of Newton. So we will discuss some things that are uh, current innovations in optics. Well, certainly there's a lot of applications to optics, to modern telecommunications, modern, uh, uh, lots of modern experiments. And so we'll discuss some of the uh, state of the art in various research areas that rely on optics. But mostly what we're going to do is a fundamental background of stuff that's been more or less well understood for the past at least one, 100 years. Uh, some of it dating back, like I said, all the way to Newton. So today, we will uh, basically just go through the announcements, the uh, syllabus in a little bit of detail, and some introductions. So I'm Peter Beiersdorf. I'm a physics faculty here. And I teach basically all the optics classes. I teach laser spectroscopy, electro-optics, graduate optics, undergraduate optics at one time or another. So I do optics, if you couldn't guess. I work with uh, lasers doing precision interferometry, so measurements of distances uh, over very small scales. Okay, so I have a background in optics. Um, my email address is up here, and I write this on the board just so if you forget my name and you want to ask me a question right now, it's up there. All of this is in your syllabus. It's also online. Okay, so your syllabus is everything you need in order to get started in the class. Uh, it has the web page address. And it has my email address. So you'll probably want to bookmark or, or put an, a contact in your address book for both of those. Um, that is the easiest way to get a hold of me is with email. Um, how about you guys? How many of you are physics majors? Is anybody not a physics major? Or what, where are you coming from? No, secondary education. OK. And then how many people have taken, I guess, uh, Physics 51 here, or 52. 52 is where you cover optics, right? OK. So in 52, you learn ray diagrams, imaging, uh, diffraction, right? Do you know what we're going to cover in this class? Ray diagrams, imaging, diffraction. Uh, we're going to cover it in a little more depth than you got in 52, uh, certainly with a little more uh, physical background. And then we're going to cover some, we're going to grow on that and cover some more uh, aspects of optics that weren't necessarily covered there. Um, today we'll talk about properties of light. We'll try to, try to come up with everything that makes light distinguishable from other light. When we look at lights coming from the ceiling. We say, OK, there's some light coming from over there. There's some light coming from over there. How do we know that's two different sources of light? We'll talk about everything that makes them distinguishable. And what that means is everything that makes them distinguishable can be described by a parameter in an equation. So we'll put forward the wave equation. We'll look at a few solutions to it. And we'll do a couple examples. OK, so as I mentioned, this is in your syllabus. This is actually straight out of the syllabus. Uh, my office is right across the hall. So it's easy to find me. Um, although my office hours actually will be in this classroom before class. I'll just be here for an hour before class. I do that because it has the computers. And I'm trying to make myself also available to students who do online homework. And we're not going to be doing online homework in this class. But um, in some of the other classes, we have online homework. And I want to be available to the students there as well. Okay, So before class, you can come and find me. Um, 
additionally, on monday, wednesday, i have an evening class, and i hold office hours after that, so eight fifteen to well, it's written eight fifteen to eight forty five. basically, um, if you come in on monday, wednesday evening, you can find me after my class, which ends at eight fifteen, and i'll be available as long as you have questions. Um, but those are the times where i definitely be in my office. Uh, if you want to come by at a time other than that, you're welcome to stop by and see if I'm in. If I'm not, you can set up an appointment or email me and ask me when I will be in. Class has a web page, so let's go there now. Uh, the URL that I gave you is actually just the link to my page. It's a little easier to type in than the actual URL of the class web page, but I have a link to the web page here. So you can follow it. You can get to it by clicking on the, that link. And if you want to bookmark the class webpage, it's, it's that URL. But you probably actually want to bookmark so you don't have to follow that link each time. So I wanted to go through this just to uh, help you out. The first time you log in, obviously you need to have a uh, username and password here. And so there's typically a few problems people have at the beginning of the semester. So I wanted to go through this and log in myself. Your login ID is going to be your student ID. Just your full student ID, 00, and whatever the numbers are. Your default password is, uh, I believe, four-digit. There's a little confusion on this. It should be the four-digit uh, date of your birth. So if you're born like May 15th, that'd be 0515. And then you can change that once you log in. Now, I've had a number of students in the other class that I'm teaching who that didn't work for. And what they found was that if they typed in spring, that that worked. I don't know. They, that used to be the convention. When you got an account, your default password was the semester that it was created. And then they just changed that. And I don't know which one will work for you. But those are the two things to try. Uh, once you're in, you'll probably want to change your password. How many people are using uh, Blackboard or WebCT in another course or have used it in another course? OK, so when you're in, let's see. What you want to do is you want to go to the My Blackboard link. And this lists all of the classes that you're enrolled in that have a web page through this service. And so um, you, know, you can navigate to those classes. But the other thing you can do is you can change some settings here that are defaults for all of your classes. And I want you to go in and do that. Uh, primarily to make sure that your email address is up to date. You need to have a valid email address and one that you're actually checking. Uh, because if I send out a message to the class, I send it out you know, through the service. I say, send a message to the class, and it will distribute it to everybody's email address that they've got there. Okay, so that means if you change email providers halfway through the semester, you can go in and yourself change the email address that I will be sending messages to. So you have to keep that up to date. Uh, that's important because if I cancel a class or I change a homework due date or something like that, that's how I will tell you. Or that's one of the ways I will tell you. And so I will expect that you will receive any of those messages that I send to it. Um, you can change that just by editing the profile and then, then changing that information.
Okay, so going back to the class website, there are, uh, I guess, four different pieces of content here. So there's the syllabus. So you've all got a paper copy of that. You can always reference it anywhere you are by going to the web page. Um, this online copy also lists a reading schedule, which I didn't have done when I printed those, those uh, syllabuses that you have. But if you, let's see, if you scroll down to the bottom of the online syllabus, here's a list of what we'll be covering in class and the associated chapters in your textbook. So the intent that I have is for you to read those chapters before you come to class. Okay, other content, uh, all class lecture notes are posted online in PDF format. I post them, I try to post them about a week before I actually use them, so you have time to print them and read up on them. So you can find those here. A couple comments about that. They're going to roughly follow the chapters in the textbook. So you can sort of keep track not only of the notes, but then what parts of the textbook you should be reading uh, to follow along with that. Now sometimes there's errors in my notes. I try to minimize those, but they, they do crop up. So you can get extra credit for catching them and correcting them. Okay. The way you do that is click on the slide corrections link right here, and that will take you to a discussion board. And you can create a message. In the title of your message, put the slide number. Okay, so the chapter and the, and the number of the slide. And then you know, describe the correction, and I will go through the discussion board and, and monitor that and add corrections to my notes, or, or correct my notes, and assign extra credit for things that people find. Uh, a couple comments on that. You, I, you're free to submit anything you find that's incorrect whether it be typos or spelling errors or mathematical equations that are wrong or you know, statements that are wrong, I'll only give extra credit if it's a substantive error, if it's something that has physical consequences. So if it's a typo, that doesn't get any extra credit. So you can still submit it. I'll still correct the slide. Um, and then if it's, like a prop, if it's an error that propagates through several slides or through several equations, I'll usually only give one point of extra credit for that entire sequence of errors. Um, a point of extra credit is a half a percent of your overall grade. So you can get up to 10% more on your overall grade by submitting slide corrections. So typically what happens is there's a couple people who really want this extra credit and they find lots of errors. <laughs> and so and those people usually get about one grade higher in the class than they otherwise would have. So it's to your benefit um, and it's also my way of making up for the fact that the, the lecture notes aren't perfect. This is where you'll get your assignments. So we'll have roughly home, once a week homework assignments occasionally. They'll be uh, less frequent than that. Your first one is due February 5th. I think that's a Wednesday. No, must be a, is it a Tuesday? It wouldn't be a Wednesday because it's supposed to be a lecture day. So you can download that here. Um, once that is, uh, once February 5th rolls around, that link will be replaced by a link to the, the uh, solutions. So I put the solutions up as soon as I collect homework, which means I don't accept late homework. So 
there's a discu uh, discussion board for the homework that you can use as well. So you can post questions here, uh, both to the group and to myself. You can post hints and tips here. I will occasionally post homework hints here. So it's a good place to go when you start doing your homework. Um, please go there, even if you don't have a question, it's useful for you to go there because someone else may have posted a hint or asked a question that you can answer. Okay, so the more of you answer each other's questions, the use, more useful this resource will be. Um, I check the discussion board at least once a day, but uh, you know, that may not be, the time when I check it may not be the time where you're wanting a homework hint. Okay, so the more of you are on using this, the more helpful it would be. I don't want people posting complete solutions there, but I don't mind you posting substantive hints. And I guess finally, there's a link to podcasts. So I record all the lectures and make them available online. So you can download those. Um, you just have to subscribe to the podcast once at the beginning of the semester, and then they'll be uh, downloaded to your computer. OK, so with that said, um, I wear a little microphone. This is what's recording the audio. Um, it won't pick up your voices. If you're sitting back there, if you come up to me during the middle of class and say, hey, I'm failing the class, what should I do? That's going to get recorded into the podcast. Okay? So I, I've never had that happen. It shouldn't be a problem, but I just want you to be aware of that. Okay? Okay, any questions about the web page? If you are not enrolled in the class yet, you will not have an account to log into. Okay? So you'll have to enroll first before you're able to access this. If you are enrolled and you can't access it, send me an email just to let me know. There's not much I can do. I don't actually administer the accounts, but I would at least like to know, and I can help you out by emailing you lecture notes or whatever you need. And then uh, you'd have to consult, I guess, the uh, university help desk to figure out actually how to fix the issue. OK, our textbook is going to be Introduction to Optics by Frank Leno Leno Padrati. So uh, I guess Anne Frank, Jay Leno, uh, Leno Padrati, who's actually a physics professor, and Katya Padrati, who is a star of Big Brother. Those are the, they collaborated to write this textbook. Uh, you can find it in the bookstore. Um, it, I think this is the textbook that's required for the optics lab. So hopefully some of you will be able to get double duty out of this. Uh, if you have the textbook by Hecht, I don't know if anybody has that. I used that in the course last time I taught this course, and I really like it. Uh, the students didn't like it as much, which is why we're using Pedradino. But if you have that, it covers all the same material. So there's no real reason to buy this textbook if you have something that's equivalent. So do you have problems for Pedradino? My intent is to, let's see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. My intent is to type up all the problems so that the homework that you print out off the web is self-sufficient. But that takes a lot of time and effort and is subject to me mistyping things. And sometimes the homework problems relate to diagrams in the book. So it may be at some point that I say, do problem 3.1 in Pedrati. Okay, so I can't promise that. OK, course grading. Um, we have three midterm exams that will cover the beginning, middle, and end of the class. Okay, so the final midterm is 
the week before the final exam, and we'll cover everything that we've covered you know, since the second midterm until the end of class. So these three midterms will allow me to gauge how you've done in the class. Right? And then you'll have homework that also will go from now until the last week of class. So the exams and the homework collectively will allow you to demonstrate your ability over the entire course of the semester. So that's what I will use to determine your grade. Each of these will be 25%. Exam, 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 and homework. Okay, so what's the problem with that methodology? Mark? The final, the final doesn't get included in the grade. Right. Okay, if you can demonstrate to me through the course of the, the semester that you know the material, then I don't care that you do it again on the final. However, if you fail to demonstrate to me during the course of the semester, then you get one more chance on the final exam. So I will take the higher of your grade for the final exam or for the combination of homework and, and midterms. Okay, so if you screw up an exam, you think you could do much better, um, you always have a chance to do better on the final. Okay, but if you work diligently through the semester and you've got an A going into the final, then there's no reason to take the final. Okay, so it will reward those of you who do well throughout the semester, um, but it also provides some incentive for those of you who feel that you could have performed better, you'll get a second chance. Okay, so the exams are all worth 25% of your grade. The homework is worth 25% of your grade. Homework scores, I'm just going to take the raw score, whatever percentage you get on the homework. The exams I curve. So I curve um, so that a 90 to 100 would be an A, an 80 to a 90 would be a B, a 70 to an 80 would be a C, and then the top and bottom of those ranges would be the plus and minuses. Okay, so roughly what you'd consider a standard score, scoring scale. Um, on the homework and on the exams, you need to present a solution to the problem, not just an answer. Okay, so most of the answers to the questions in the textbook are given in the back of the textbook. Okay, but the solutions aren't. They don't go through the steps to get that answer. They don't go through the all the mathematical proofs or the uh, diagrams that would be needed to motivate it. Okay, so I will grade you based on your solution, not the final answer, or not just the final answer. Okay. Other class policy and rules. Um, this stuff's just straight boilerplate language from the uh, university. You need to know when the add and drop deadline is. If you're testing this course out, you're not sure you want to take it, and you decide you want to drop it, if the drop deadline is passed, you can drop it, but it counts on your transcript like you failed it. Okay, and there's nothing I can do to help you out with that. So it's your responsibility to know uh, when the add and drop deadlines are so you can, can register appropriately. Um, I don't think there's anything in the catalog necessarily that applies to our class. Uh, as far as class rules, if you have a cell phone, I don't want to hear it ring or I don't want to hear you talking. Uh, if you have an urgent issue that you need to deal with, that's fine. Just put your cell phone on vibrate and walk out of the class when it rings, and that's okay. Um, you can work on assignments in groups. I have no problem with people collaborating. I'll even let you turn in uh, a single written assignment for more than one student, uh, provided that everybody who signs that is, is uh, I guess, I want to say it. It's, it's like signing a contract that you understand what, what you wrote. Okay, so if I test you on the exams, I expect you to know everything that was covered in the homework and everything that was covered in class. Okay, so 
you can up to three people can turn in a single written assignment. Um, and then beyond that, I just want you guys to participate in the class, participate by you know, interacting with me during the lecture, but also by steering the way the lectures go. If you're not happy with the level of mathematical detail or the physical background or the applications that we're discussing, you need to let me know. Um, I have an anonymous feedback form on the webpage. It's anonymous, or it can be anonymous. It is anonymous to start with. Um, it has a field for your name and your email address, both of which are blank. And if you leave them blank, it gets sent through university remailer. I won't know where it came from. Um, so you can use that and give me feedback, and I do modify the course to deal with people's feedback. Um, those SOATs that you fill out at the end of the semester aren't going to help you at all, because I'm not going to see those until next year. So use the anonymous feedback form. If you want a response to a question that you have, or you want me to address your issue, then you need to give me your name or your email address so I can reply to you. Otherwise, I will uh, take them and do whatever I want with them, and I won't necessarily close the loop with you. OK, so let's talk. Well, let me ask if there's any questions about the policies first. Mark? For the uh, mistakes on the slide, do we say, I think there's an error, or do we have to say, there's an error and this should be the correction? Or? Um, if you know the correction, you should post it. Sometimes it's just like, I, the units don't work. I know this can't be right. I don't know necessarily what the correct equation is. So that's fine. But if you post um, as much as you can, that's what I expect you to do. OK, so some questions to ponder about light. Um, and these are things that you may have sort of had addressed before. Is light particles, or is it a wave? This is one of the great questions in the 19th century. Lots of matter can be thought of as discrete particles, whether it be solids, liquids, or gases. Is light just the same as that? Or is it more like a disturbance? Anyone want to weigh in? <laughs> With a point for either or. I don't need a full answer. So what makes it particle-like? So how would that manifest itself? If, if, it, if light comes in discrete chunks called photons, how, would that be, how could that be observed? The photoelectric effect. Yeah. What's the photoelectric effect? The photon comes in and hits an electron in metal. Yeah. And so um, what happens if the photon has, what dependence does that have on the photon's properties? Anybody remember? The photoelectric effect by itself says you shine, if you shine light onto a metal, you get a current. And that doesn't necessarily say that light has to be a particle. So what is it about the photoelectric effect that says, well, light has to be a particle? Let's see, is there any other? Yeah, the photoelectric effect only happens for light above a certain frequency. So what it says is, if you have low frequency light, that's low energy light, no matter how intense the light beam is, 
you won't get the photoelectric effect occurring. But you can have a less intense beam at a higher frequency, and you can get the photoelectric effect. So apparently, energy is carried in individual photons. And a single photon has to have enough energy to excite an electron, or else it doesn't happen. So that's one of the reasons that light is like a particle. How about the wave nature of light? What's an argument for that? Diffraction. Okay, so diffraction. What is diffraction? Where you uh, shine it through, like the two-foot thing, and you get interference patterns on the background. Yeah, so interference. Waves obey the superposition principle. And you can add up waves from, or multiple waves, and get interference effects. And light exhibits that. OK, good. So we'll talk about all of that uh, in, a, in a little bit. Um, another question. Light's an electromagnetic wave, right? So the wave picture says it's an oscillation in the electromagnetic field. It happens very fast. It's a high frequency wave. Um, so the electric field, as well as the magnetic field, have some oscillation. They go to some maximum value to zero and then some minimum value. So why is it? When we see light, we don't see the light getting brighter, darker, brighter, darker, brighter, darker. Okay, close. Yeah, it gets averaged. It's actually your eye that averages it. So your brain actually never sees those oscillations. And the reason is they're just too fast. They're much faster than, than even the signals can be processed by the optical nerve. And so your eye averages this out. But an interesting issue, let's say this is a sine wave. What's the average over many cycles of a sine wave? Zero, yeah. Okay, so we'll, we'll address that. We'll address that today. Just, that's just meant to get you thinking. OK, so we talked about light as a wave and as a particle. So as a wave, it propagates as a disturbance in the electric and magnetic fields. Um, those fields are related. Um, if there's a certain disturbance in the electric field, that has a corresponding disturbance in the magnetic field. Okay, so we don't need to necessarily describe how the electric field and the magnetic field are changing. We will typically focus on the electric field, just as a convention. We will talk about the magnitude, the uh, phase and amplitude of an electric field wave. And we'll just understand that there's an associated magnetic field wave, which can be determined completely once you know the electric field. Okay, so it's a wave. It can be described by all these wave-like properties of wavelength and like, uh, corresponding to that, a frequency. Other wave-like properties of direction, of travel, of speed at which it propagates. But it's also, in a sense, particles. It's photons. So it interacts with matter in a discrete way. So interactions occur when single photons get absorbed. And for a lot of classical effects, when you have very, very many photons, the effect of a single additional photon is negligible. But when you deal with um, very low intensities or very, uh, very small effects that you're trying to measure, this quantized effect becomes important. And so we said that its energy is quantized. Its momentum is also quantized which also has important consequences. OK, so talking about light as a wave, it has to obey 
a wave equation. A wave, a sinusoidal oscillation, is just a solution to a particular equation. And if you're doing mechanics and you have a mechanical wave, that is a solution to the equation for equilibrium or the particles that are constituting the medium that the wave is propagating in. For an electric field, the wave equation is given here. This is a consequence of Maxwell's laws, and we'll derive this later. Okay, so this just comes from combining um, Gauss's law, Ampere's law, and Faraday's law. We'll see how that works. Um, for now, let's just take this as a starting point. And what it says is the curvature of the electric field, del squared is the curvature, is proportional to the rate of change in time of the electric field. And the constant of proportionality is 1 over the velocity of the wave. That little p, that subscript p, means phase velocity. We'll learn that there's different velocities for a wave. A phase velocity is the velocity at which the phase front moves. Okay, and for now, um, that's the only velocity we'll be concerned with. We'll find out, though, that when you have a wave like that coming from these lights, it's composed of many frequencies. And so you don't have well-defined phase fronts. You don't have a single frequency oscillation. So we talk about the group velocity, which is slightly different. Okay, so for now, talking about the phase velocity, it's the constant of proportionality here between the second spatial derivative and the second time derivative. And if we want to look at this in one dimension, then del squared just becomes d squared dx squared. And so we can write it like this in one dimension. And if we consider this in free space, then the velocity has a known value. And that constant is c. And that is a constant. The speed of light since 1983 has been a constant. What does that mean, since 1983? Was it changing before then? Any thoughts? There are no experimental errors anymore. 1983, we got rid of all the experimental errors. Does anyone want to know how? Want to hazard a guess as to how we did that? Well, yeah, we we defined it as a given value. Okay, so prior to that, the meter was defined as the length of whatever. It changed over time. It used to be the length of a one meter long chunk of metal, and then it changed the length of various things that had increasing uh, reproducibility. And then time was also defined. Time is currently defined as, um, so a second is defined as the length of time it takes a cesium atom to oscillate between two particular energy levels a certain number of times. So it's related to an atomic energy transition in a material. Well, the speed of light became defined and what that means is they had to remove the definition for one of those other quantities. So the meter is no longer a defined quantity. Okay, so the speed of light is defined. A second is defined. If you know what a second is and you know what the speed of light is, then you can define the meter in terms of how far light travels in a certain fraction of a second. And that's the current definition of a meter. Okay, so now there's no, you can't measure the speed of light. There's no reason to measure it. It's defined. If you measure the speed of light, what you are really measuring is the length of a meter. <laughs> okay. OK, in any event, uh, in free space, the speed of light is defined. And this letter C is the uh, symbol that represents that value. 
solutions to this equation. This is a second order differential equation, so it's probably not surprising that it has solutions that are oscillating, solutions that are the form sine and cosine. Right, we can take the second derivative of cosine and we get something that's proportional to cosine. We take the second derivative in space or the second derivative in time of this particular function and we get some constant times that function. Yeah. This is one of, well, this is a general solution. There are several ways to express this. Now, these different parameters that are in here, the amplitude, the phase, the spatial frequency, and the temporal frequency um, can all vary. Okay, and in fact, you can have these as imaginary quantities. And if you have cosine of an imaginary argument, that can be written in terms of exponentials. So there's also an exponential form of the solution to this. Okay, so this is one way of expressing the solution, but it's completely general. Every possible solution to the wave equation can be expressed in this form. Okay, so take a quick look at this expression because it's about to go away. And I'm going to ask you some of the things that relate to that. The question is, what is light? Um, and what I mean by that is that we know it's a transverse wave. It's a solution to the wave equation. Propagates at the speed of light. Um, it's made up of particles and, and photons. But what differentiates, what differentiates it from other electromagnetic waves? Okay, so we saw that wave equation. We saw a solution. I said that represented an expression for light. Well, it represents an expression for all solutions to, to the electromagnetic wave equation. So radio waves, microwaves, um, x-rays, gamma rays, they're all solutions to the wave equation. How is light different? How is optical radiation different? Well, you might say it's visible. And, and in one definition of light, yes. The particular region of the spectrum that our eyes can observe is what we tend to think of as light. Okay, and so for a long time, up until about uh, mid-1800s, that's what people defined light to be, electromagnetic waves that we could see. Um, couple problems with that. One is that the region of the spectrum that we can see, it's not, it's not a well-defined step function. It actually has these long tails. And typically people will say you can see up to about 720, 730 nanometers. And one day I was working with a laser that was at 808 nanometers, which is considered infrared. But it was a very bright laser and I could see it. I could see it because my eyes have, like your eyes, have some response there. Okay, so that's one issue. But then the other thing is, um, yeah, what happens when you get just beyond the region that you can see? Well, most of the properties of the light don't change, except for the fact that you can see it. Some of the other animals can see it. Some animals can see ultraviolet. Some can see infrared. So you know, does that change the definition of light? Any other ideas? And how? Well, let me just state this. Current definition of light considers ultraviolet, infrared, even far infrared, as optical radiation. 
Yeah. So the light which will pass through the glass as opposed to that which reflects off of it? Okay. So this is another issue. Depending on the type of glass you choose, you get different transmission properties. So flint glass, for instance, will transmit optical, what we think of as uh, visible radiation. It won't transmit ultraviolet. Um, you can buy glass for your, for your house that will not transmit infrared in order to keep the heat in. You can also buy glass that will transmit the infrared to let the heat out depending on what you're trying to do. Um, OK, so it's a difficult question. But a couple things that we can think about are that light has a very high frequency of oscillation. One of the reasons we said we couldn't see the electromagnetic field varying is because it just varies too fast. So our eye averages over it. So that's one of, the, one of the criteria, is that an optical wave is one where the oscillation is so fast that your eye or any other instrument that could measure electromagnetic radiation can't respond at those frequencies. Okay, so as a result, it's not the actual change in the electric field that's observed by any detector, whether it be a CCD, a photodiode, photomultiplier tube, an eye, an optic nerve, whatever. The variations are just too fast. So that differs from, say, a radio wave. A radio wave, you have an antenna on your car, right? It picks up the oscillations in the electromagnetic field from induced by a radio tower somewhere in San Francisco, let's say. Um, your, the electronic circuit in your radio actually has a current which is varying at the frequency, say, you know, 100 megahertz that that radio station is broadcasting at. Okay? The circuit can actually follow the electromagnetic wave. That's not the case with optical waves. So that's one differentiating factor. Yeah? Well, we'll learn a lot about fiber optics later in the semester, but a fiber optic is just a waveguide that the light travels through. Well, you can measure, you can observe light. You just don't observe it as the changing electromagnetic field. You observe some average of that field. And we're about to learn how that averaging works. Okay. We actually observe the average of the square of this field. We have what's called a square law detector in our eyes. Okay. And virtually all, well, all optical instruments are square law detectors. They observe the square of the electric field, which is proportional to the energy contained in it. Or since it's a traveling wave, the power contained in the electromagnetic wave. OK, so that helps distinguish light from lower frequency and lower energy sources, right? Radio waves. Um, what about the higher energy waves, like gamma rays or microwaves? We think of those as something different than optical light. What makes them different? Let's, let's focus on an easy one, x-rays. What is the, since the time you were four years old, what is the thing you knew about x-rays? They can go through stuff. That's what makes them so cool. Uh, x-rays 
don't interact with matter the same way light waves do. Okay. They actually, they're governed by the same physical laws. What's different is that most matter has electronic transitions. Different orbitals of the electron have different energy states associated with them. If you give, if you put a photon on an atom and give it enough energy, if the photon is high enough frequency, it can excite an electron to a higher energy level. Well, optical waves don't have enough energy. Well, they have enough energy maybe to excite an electron. They don't have enough energy to strip the electron off, to ionize it. And that's one of the things that differentiates it from higher frequency waves. Um, when you go to the doctor, to the dentist, and get your mouth x-rayed, you have to wear a lead jacket. Right? Because x-rays can be damaging. They can damage tissue. One of the reasons they damage tissue is they have the potential to ionize and just basically rip molecules apart. Um, regular optical waves don't have that much energy. Okay, so it's a fairly loose definition, but that's sort of how we separate the regions of the spectrum. Okay, and the visible region is actually a very small portion of what we consider optical radiation. So here's optical radiation here. This is on a log-log scale. Okay, if this were a linear scale, the visible region wouldn't even be, wouldn't even be one pixel on this graph. Um, okay, so the highest energy waves actually aren't even on this. This would be gamma rays out here. The highest frequency, highest energy waves are gamma rays. And then we just have different names for the different regions. Um, there's always some fuzziness in between the regions, but essentially they uh, have types of differences like we described for the optical range, some sort of physical distinction between uh, how they interact with matter. So we have gamma rays, x-rays, and then the optical region, which goes from ultraviolet, which is the most energetic, that's the stuff that can burn your skin, right? The visible, all the way from violet to red, and continuing, continuing beyond red is the infrared. The near-infrared is what I described, a laser at 808 nanometers. The laser in your CD player, for instance, is infrared. Um, the LED on your remote control is infrared. It's essentially visible. It's almost the same frequency as visible light, but it's just beyond the visible so that you don't actually be annoyed by seeing your remote control blinking every time you press a button. Um, if there's enough power, you might be able to see those, those types of devices. Then further out in the infrared, uh, we have what we call the far infrared. And this is if you see like an infrared uh, video of something where hot objects are glowing red. This is the region of the spectrum associated with that type of imaging. So objects give off heat as infrared radiation, the, the thermal black body radiation emitted from sources around room temperature typically have peaks out here in the far infrared. So you'll often talk about, hear about like infrared as thermal rays. That's because black bodies at room temperature give off rays about in the infrared. At lower frequency, we have microwaves. That's uh, gigahertz region. Megahertz region is radio waves. And then you can go all the way down to DC, DC fields, you know, which would be your battery. Okay, so um, this spectrum is important in terms of the photoelectric effect, right? We talked about the photoelectric effect 
as one of the ways you can tell that light is a particle. And what that effect is, is you have a metal, a metal, or some material, usually metal, and when a photon hits it, depending on the amount of energy in that photon, it will uh, either have no effect, or if there's enough energy to ionize and eject an electron, it will eject an electron, and any additional energy beyond that necessary to ionize the electron gets converted into additional kinetic energy of the electron. And so what's important here is that as you go from high energy light, high energy photons, high frequency light, to low frequency, the kinetic energy of the ejected electrons diminishes. And below the point where the kinetic energy would be 0, there's actually no electron ejected. Okay, so at low wavelengths, no matter how much energy you put on, no matter how many photons you illuminate a surface with, none of them will eject an electron. So it's not the amount of energy on the surface. It's the amount of energy in each discrete bundle that it can absorb. And as you go to higher and higher frequencies, shorter and shorter wavelengths, each individual photon carries more energy. So even if there isn't as much total energy uh, in the optical beam, if each discrete packet has enough to ionize an electron, you will get a current flowing in your metal when you shine light on it. Yes? Why do you say B-mass? Right here? Yeah. That's going to be the maximum velocity. That maximum velocity is the velocity associated with the kinetic energy that this electron can have. And so I can write out. Why can it have a lower velocity? Why can't it? Why can't it? Why can't it? Um, it can lose. Before it le well, in this interaction region, some of its kinetic energy could be transferred to neighbors, produce a phonon in the substrate, or just it could lose some of that kinetic energy through collisions. Okay, we have some energy, the photon coming in, that goes into the binding energy to release the electron plus some kinetic energy. And that kinetic energy is associated with a maximum velocity. Okay, so quantum mechanically, then light is composed of photons, individual discrete chunks of light in what we mean by discrete is they carry discrete amounts of energy and momentum. So the energy of a single photon is proportional to the frequency. It's Planck's constant times the frequency of light. The frequency of light, when we think of it as a wave, is associated with the wavelength. So you can write this as Planck's constant times c over lambda. c over lambda is the wavelength of the light. Or is the frequency of the light. That's the energy associated with a single photon of a given wavelength. The momentum has a similar expression. It looks like h bar k. k is what we call the wave vector. The wave vector is just 2 pi over the wavelength. That's 
its magnitude, its direction, is in the direction of propagation. We generally describe the direction of propagation then as k hat, the direction of this k vector. And if you remember, the expression for an electric field in uh, x and t, we had a one-dimensional electric field, although I guess I can write it generally in terms of r. It looked like, I'll write it like this. I'll write the one-dimensional equivalent of this underneath. So k was this constant of proportionality, this, this uh, multiplicative factor in front of our spatial, our spatial variable. Okay, so just like the time dependence of this oscillation is scaled by omega, the angular frequency of the wave, the spatial dependence is scaled by k. Okay, so what is omega? Uh, square root k over. What is it in terms of uh, the frequency of the wave? It's 2 pi f. So if f is the number of, well, what is f? The frequency of a wave. Physically, what does that mean? It's the number of oscillations per second. So omega is 2 pi times that. So another way of saying that, it's the number of oscillations in 2 pi seconds. That's what omega is. What is k? Using the same analogy. So it's 2 pi over lambda. And physically, what does that mean? What's that? Yeah, so it's, it's oscillations per distance. And in this case, the distance is 2 pi meters. If the wavelength is measured in meters, this is the number of wavelengths in 2 pi meters. So 2 pi meters is like from here to the wall. Just a number tells how many wavelengths you can fit in that distance. The larger k is, the higher frequency the wave is. So we can call k the spatial frequency, where omega would be like the temporal frequency. And so the higher the frequency of a wave, the higher the angular frequency of the wave, the greater the energy. h bar times omega gives us the energy. Well, h bar times k gives us the momentum. The higher the spatial frequency of a wave, the higher the frequency of the wave, the greater the momentum, as you'd expect. And momentum's a vector, so it makes sense that it's proportional to a vector. Whatever direction the wave is going is the direction that the momentum photons have is. OK, so class is kind of long. I'd like to break it up. We'll take a two-minute break. You can uh, stretch, go to the bathroom, whatever. We'll get started fairly quickly again in two minutes. Anybody come late? Need a syllabus? Not get a syllabus.
Um, you should read the material. And then um, I podcast the classes so you can view it on your computer. And it'll be posted in an hour, usually, at the end of the class. So I'd check up on that, too. Sure. Well, it depends. So what's the difference? Uh, the way I wrote it, so omega can be positive or negative. And if it's negative, that just you know, changes that sign. But what this means, so assuming omega and k are positive values, which would typically be what, the way we would express these, if I write it this way, where it's plus, then what that says is if I want to follow, like a surfer would, a crest of a wave as it moves along, as time increases, then this term is getting bigger, so this term needs to get smaller in order to keep this, this phase a constant, which means I'm following a point on the phase front. Um, so if this is positive, then this has to become more negative, meaning as time increases, x has to get smaller or go in the negative direction. So this is an expression for a wave traveling in the negative x direction. If I change the sign there, then it becomes a wave traveling in a positive x direction. And that's assuming that omega and k are going to be positive quantities. OK, let's get started back up again. The question is, what are some distinguishing properties of a light wave? And I've got this equation on the board here, which uh, should give us some clues. And I mentioned when I put it up before that um, that we're going to talk about some of the distinguishing properties of a light wave and try to sort of reproduce all the terms that are in this equation and why they're physically significant. So what I mean by that is um, there's light coming from all around us right now, right? There's the light from the projector that's hitting the screen, the light from the overheads that are hitting the screen, the light from the windows that hit the screen. And all this light hits the screen. So what's the difference between it all? And we know that, that there is a difference, right? You can tell if a flashlight and a laser beam cross in the dark, you know, you have two different rays or beams of light, and they're different somehow. What makes them different? So what's the first one? Frequency. You could have different frequency rays. So the light that's hitting right here from the projector is blue. So it would have a frequency somewhere around 450 nanometers, or a wavelength around 450 nanometers and an associated frequency. And that's different than the light coming from outside that hits. Right? But I could take, say, two red lasers right, that come from the same, same laser that are the same frequencies. I could split the beams, and I could pass them by each other. Right? And they could cross, and they're different. So what else can make them different if the frequencies aren't 
Yep. So amplitude is one of them. Essentially, you can have bright light or dim light, right? I mean, you can have two beams, one's brighter than the other. That's one way to tell them apart. You can have a phase difference. That's a little harder to see or observe because we don't observe the actual sinusoidal variations of a wave. We observe an average. And when we average, you lose the phase information. But light is a wave. You can interfere multiple beams and get an interference pattern that depends on the phase difference. Okay, so we can observe that if we conduct a properly detailed experiment. Yeah, then the number of photons would be related to the amplitude. So that would be the same thing. There's two more that I can think of. Yeah, polarization is one. We haven't talked about that. But we know that light is a transverse wave. A transverse wave means uh, the oscillation is perpendicular to the direction of propagation. Well, so if light is propagating in this direction, it can be a disturbance in the electric field that's going up and down, or it could be towards you, right? Or it could be some combination of those. So there's uh, two dimensions of polarization. There's two orthogonal polarization states that light can have. And there's one more. Coherence is going to be related to the frequency. Uh, when you have something, when you say light is very coherent, really what you're saying is it has a very narrow frequency uh, distribution. And if it's incoherent, you have a large frequency distribution so that the different uh, frequencies uh, add up, essentially out of phase after a certain length. This one maybe is too obvious. Direction, yeah. The direction that the light is going. And if we're talking about rays, which most of most introductory optics deals with, um, direction is the direction that the ray is traveling. When you do lasers and you do uh, some more modern applications of optics, you tend to think of beams. A beam is not that different than a ray. Um, but a beam has a little bit different terminology that we use here. It would be called spatial mode. The spatial mode of the beam. And those are the five things that are necessary to describe light. So if we go back here at this equation, this equation, as I've written it, actually has four of those things in it. Right? It's got, uh, what's the first one, frequency right there. It's got amplitude. It's got phase. Does it have polarization? No, nope, I need to make this a vector. That needs to have a direction associated with it. And I was not very careful when I wrote this. I wrote that as a vector, but then I didn't write the right side as a vector. And then I didn't write this as a vector at all. I need to include polarization. And then what about direction? That's taken care of by the k-vector. The direction of that k-vector is the direction that the light is propagating. And in this instance, this is the equation for a one-dimensional wave. I've written it in terms of x, the coordinate x. So I know this is a wave in the x direction. 
And there's a question during the break. Um, I'll sort of rework the question. Essentially was, is this a forward or a backwards going wave? Okay, this as written, it's in the x direction, but is it plus x or minus x? And the way we figure that out is we just imagine a surfer on the edge of a wavefront. That surfer is going to move along with the wave. Which direction are they going? Well, they're staying at a point of constant phase, which means this argument for the oscillating function is constant as the point moves across. So if time is increasing, which is our definition of when we define things as forward or backwards, we're always assuming positive time. So if time is increasing and omega and k are positive quantities, then this term here is growing in magnitude. It's becoming more and more positive. Phi naught doesn't change. It's just the initial phase at t equals 0 and x equals 0. So as this term gets bigger, for the entire argument to be a constant, what does x have to do? It has to get smaller and smaller or more and more negative. So the wave, the point on the wavefront that is a constant phase has to be moving in the minus x direction. Okay, so this is in the x direction. It's actually in the negative x direction. It's the direction of propagation here. Okay, so this expression describes everything that makes a ray of light unique. And what we actually observe, as I mentioned, is many, many different rays hitting a point, hitting our eye, right? coming from different places, having different frequencies, having different directions. And so a very general expression for the electric field, say, as a function of time that enters our eye, it's going to be something like the sum of many, many different rays. So I could write out one of these expressions. And I could sum over both polarizations. So and I could sum over all frequencies. And I could sum over all directions. But what we're generally going to do is look at one particular ray of light that has a known polarization, frequency, phase, all of that, and try to understand how that propagates. And then we'll just realize that what we actually might observe would be the sum of a whole host of similar rays. Yes. Three integrals of or three summations? Well, I'm summing over two polarization states. Those are discrete quantities. And I'm integrating over all direction, which is not a discrete quantity, and all frequency, which is a continuous variable. There's, there's, yeah, polarization as a vector can be described in terms of two components. So it's, in that sense, discrete. Um, OK. so. I've got all of those in the notes as well. OK, so some of the 
relationships between the quantities that appear in these expressions and these five different things that we just discussed. Um, so amplitude is the amplitude of the wave, or the, the factor in front of this oscillating factor. And that's going to be related to how bright the light is. Okay. We'll see tomorrow, or tomorrow, next time we meet, that when I say bright, that actually has a lot of subjective effects to the way the eye perceives things. But it determines uh, how large the amplitude is. The polarization is given by the direction of that vector. Okay. So the magnitude of that vector determines how large the amplitude is. The direction associ associates with the polarization. The direction of propagation is given by the direction of, of the k vector. Um, frequently, we express the wavelength of light, or we talk about the wavelength instead of the frequency. Okay, they're related. The wavelength can be written as 2 pi over k, or it can be written as c over the frequency. So if you say the wavelength and you say the frequency, you're over-constraining the situation. You only need to say one of those in order to derive the other. Okay, so on the board we have frequency, but we could also talk about the different wavelengths. And then the initial phase is just this finite term. Okay, so let's do an example that uses a couple of these uh, relationships. So these are standard relationships for any wave. Let's look at a car radio antenna. This isn't an optical example, but it's a wave example. Uh, it has a length which should be a quarter wavelength if it's optimized for the best possible detection efficiency. And so if the length is 78 centimeters long, what frequency is that antenna optimized for, or what radio station? Because we tend to talk about radio stations in terms of the frequencies of the waves that they emit. So here's our antenna. It should be one quarter wavelength long, which means we know the wavelength. The wavelength is four times the length of the antenna. And we have that length. We can relate that to a frequency from the fact that the speed of light is frequency times wavelength. So frequency is c over lambda. And we can plug in some numerical values. So the speed of light to three significant digits is 3 times 10 to the 8 meters per second. And our wavelength is 4L, where L is 78 centimeters. Or I'll write it as 0.78 meters. And that gives us um, 96.1 times 10 to the 6 hertz. So the meters cancel out. 1 over seconds is hertz. 96.1 megahertz. So that's in the center of the FM radio dial. Right? And this is 
about the length of the antenna on your car, right? So that's not, not an accident. That's designed to be in the center of the FM radio dial. So something like a satellite dish, um, so a direct TV satellite dish. Anyone know how big the antenna on that is? The dish on that is about 14 or 18 inches. The antenna is actually very, very small because it broadcasts at several gigahertz. So say a factor of at least 10 larger. And as the frequency gets larger, the size of the antenna can shrink. So actually that LNBS thing that attaches that little white knob at the end of the satellite dish has the antenna in it. It's actually much smaller. The dish just focuses the light onto that antenna. OK, what I want to do, we only have like seven or eight minutes left. So I want to introduce a type of notation that we're going to use a lot. And then I think we'll start next class with probably an example using this notation. It's complex notation. Um, waves travel as sinusoidal oscillations, which means if we describe a wave as a sine or a cosine wave, and then we do stuff to it. We let it propagate. We have it go through things. We combine other waves. We're going to have to do a lot of manipulation of trigonometric functions. Okay. That's not a lot of fun. Doing a lot of manipulation of exponential functions is way more fun. So we're going to do that. Um, turns out it's easier because let's say you want to add, multiply two exponential functions. You add their exponents. Let's say you want to multiply two trigonometric functions. You get your trig identity handbook. You open up to the page that has cosine a times cosine b, and you look up the relationship. Okay, so we want to avoid doing that, so we're going to use exponential functions. The reason we can do this is because exponential functions are also solutions to the wave equation. Um, another way of saying that is an exponential function can be written as the sum of trigonometric functions. Euler's identity, if you recall Euler's identity, said e to the i theta is equal to cosine theta plus i sine theta. So if you have a wave that you're going to express, say, as cosine theta, you could just as easily express that as the real part of e to the i theta. And so that's what we do. If you take a wave that you could express as cosine theta, we can instead express it as e to the i theta. Okay, so theta here stands for kx plus omega t plus phi naught. What you can then do is just take this exponential function and do all the math and manipulation you want on that exponential function. And when you're done, you can take the real part of that and recover the wave that that represents. OK, so here's the full expression for a traveling wave. It's a, very, it's a completely general expression. For a traveling wave um, that has spatial frequency k, temporal frequency omega, uh, phase phi naught, and amplitude e naught with polarization direction given by the direction of x. Okay, so frequently we might want to 
study what happens to this wave as time evolves or as it moves in space or something like that. So uh, a lot of times we won't really care about one of these, one or two of these variables. Oftentimes it's time. What happens is you have a laser over here, you have some optics over here. You know what's coming out of the laser, you want to understand what's going into the optics. You don't really care about how things change in time. Maybe everything's in the steady state. But what is different is the position. So maybe you don't care so much about the omega t part. Well, you can just factor that out, right? And then just look at what remains and do any sort of manipulation you want on this mathematically. And in the end, you can always just factor back in that omega t component. And so frequently, we will express a wave actually just as that part. We will express a wave as a phaser. This is a phaser. A phaser is a geometric quantity. It has an amplitude, and it has what we call a phase angle. If you plot this in the complex plane, the plane that has real numbers on the x-axis and imaginary numbers on the y-axis, The magnitude of the light is just the length of a vector. And this argument here, which we call the phase, is just the angle in the complex plane with respect to the positive x-axis. So you can take an expression for an oscillating electromagnetic field. You can factor out the time dependence. And what you get is a quantity that you can express as a phasor, which is just a vector in the complex plane. The length of that vector tells you the magnitude of the light. The angle tells you the phase. And as you move away from your laser towards your optical experiment, the position changes. And so this phase changes. And this vector would rotate. If you, looked at that, if you looked at that phaser, as you moved in space, it would rotate. If you look at one particular point, it would be fixed with whatever value this angle has at that particular point. OK, so I don't think we're going to have time to do an example with that today. Um, let me just show you what the example we'll do next time is so that you can maybe understand why this would be difficult to do with trig functions. Uh, we're going to take two waves of equal frequency that are moving in the same direction, and they have two different initial phases. Okay, so maybe you take two lasers, you combine them with a beam splitter, now they're co-propagating. Um, but they have different phases and they have different amplitudes. And we want to find out what the sum wave is, what's the total when we add them up. You can express them each as a trig function and then add them up. Or you can express them in terms of phasers and add them up. You express them as trig functions. You have cosine A plus cosine B, which is fine. But there's actually a way to combine those into a single trig function to get a simpler form. And we have to look up how to do that in a table. If we do it with phasers, we have two vectors. And how do you add vectors? Well, we can go back to our classical mechanics textbook and figure that out. But it's, it's, it's a skill that we should know without having to, to reference anything. So we'll just do it geometrically. And it'll be much easier.
okay? so that's where we're going i'll see you next next week